Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at www.mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be David Prentice, Ph.D., who will enlighten us about the use of fetal cell lines in vaccine and medication development. Both topics have been in the news during the pandemic. David's a world expert in stem cells and cell lines, different things, who is unabashedly pro-life. Andrew, why is this such an important topic? Yeah, you know, Tom, this is such a foundational topic because I think our listeners and definitely the people working in healthcare talk about this on a routine basis with their patients, with their friends, as they're trying to evaluate, you know, shots to, to get or not to get and why to do that. And I know in my practice in family medicine, I get to talk to people about this issue multiple times a day the ethical implications wow. and, uh, you know, the different shots and their different relationships. So there's a lot of, I feel like misconceptions out there, both from folks who want to make sure they're not doing anything wrong, but also folks who are trying to sell you up a river. And so here at Dr. Doctor, you're going to get the whole truth and nothing but the truth. <laughs> Very good. And this predates COVID. So this is not a COVID specific topic. Correct. Yeah, there's. this has been an issue for quite some time, and I, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with even the Vatican had responded to a letter. You know, they wrote a letter in response to a question regarding this back in 2005. So people have been, you know, aware of this and trying to figure out how do we deal with this for quite some time. So what are the key ethical things that we should be considering here, Andrew? Yeah, you know, the, the way that it breaks down, this is philosophical, so it's it kind of gets unmedical and more philosophical pretty quickly, but it, it's in relation to the nature of our participation with an action. And there's a couple of different breakdowns, kind of like a tree diagram. So the first consideration, and this is coming from the Vatican, so I trust them. Um, this is from <laughs> the Vatican in 2005, so it's even aged well. Uh, formal versus material cooperation is the first distinction. Formal cooperation, it really has to do with your intent you intend the evil action. Material cooperation, you do not intend the evil action. So that is based on you. Under, so we may never be formally cooperating with evil. That's it, never listed. God willing. Yeah, it's it's never listed. It's always bad. Hey, you know, you, do you want to go, you know, commit some crime? I'm with you. No, that's formal. That's bad. Never, <laughs> never formal. Um, so material cooperation is the realm in which we are considering this. And there's two different types there as well. The philosophical terms are immediate, which means direct, and immediate, which means indirect. And the distinction there is basically how, how direct it is and how much you are essential to fulfilling the conditions for that immoral act. So if you were providing uh, instruments to complete a crime or an immoral act, you would be directly participating. That would be immediate. Immediate would not be that case where you're not fulfilling any of the requirements to complete that act. So that's yet another branch on the tree. Furthermore, yet there's the, the question about how proximate, you know, is this something that you are very close to the evil act or something that is more remote that you're further away from? And you can imagine if you go and, you know, I'm I'm thinking of an example, maybe if you know there's a, a business that is doing bad things right there in front of your eyes and you are supporting them, that'd be different than, you know, a business who might donate money to somebody who donates money to somebody who does something bad. You know, both businesses are doing something bad, but there's a proximity there. So the more remote, the better. So anytime it's formal, the intention is shared, you can never do it. And even with direct participation where you're fulfilling the conditions for a sin, you can't do that either. But there are situations when things are remote enough and you do not intend to help them and you are actually not fulfilling any conditions for them to continue with the sin, then it, the, the Vatican and, and classic philosophy says there's a time that it is licit when there's an objective good to be obtained. And that objective good has to outweigh the evil that is tolerated. And it's always best not to participate at all if there is a, a totally, you know, morally 
good way to do something. Correct, Andrew? Correct. You always have to act in the best way possible, but there is there is an element of analysis here, which I really am grateful for the Vatican for making it simple enough that I can understand it. I'd encourage all of our listeners to, if you Google Vatican vaccine letter, it'll be like the top multiple threads. And that was regard to the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, correct? That's correct. That's where they kind of broke it down. They talked about that one in particular, and then the, the philosophical principles in general. Right. And they said you had to satisfy certain criteria if you're going to receive it. You know, there's no other option. It was a greater good to prevent this because of potential bad health outcomes than the cooperation with this, um, you know, remote material act. And then uh, you also were required to protest to the company that made the vaccine. That's right. And so that's one of the things that, you know, everybody does that in a different way. I know at the CMA, we went above and beyond when many of the the vaccines for shingles got converted to a good cell line, as opposed to the old one had a bad cell line. We had, you know, statements, publicity statements, sending letters to everybody for doing good work. On the other side, when you take a vaccine like the MMR or certain of the coronavirus vaccines, again, not about COVID particularly, but when you do have to participate in some way, it is suggested strongly that you have to find a way to you know, say, hey, I'm not okay with this. And one of the ways we do it is we have a template letter that we actually give people when they elect to take one of those shots. If they want, they just put their name on it. They can send it off to that company and fulfill that obligation because we really should let them know, hey, we want you to, to source out licit and good stem cells. Andrew, you had a couple high points from a website that had some misleading information on fetal cell lines. Yeah, you know, that's that's one of the things that I'm really excited about talking to our guests about is just the difference between abortion and fetal tissue and stem cells and cloning and all these things that, you know, a lot of terms are thrown out. But, you know, on our side, we're trying to bring clarity to this issue. You hear so many different things in the news. And so even just in a simple Google search, I wanted to learn more about, you know, stem cells before we, we talk to our guests. And so I stumbled onto California.gov stem cells, myths and misconceptions. Uh, if you're an astute listener, you might have an idea where this is going. But <laughs> some, of, some of the questions that they had, frequently asked questions, is it carried out ethically? And uh, they say, oh, yeah, we've got a board that meets to discuss ethical concerns. Okay. Um, where do these embryos come from? Well, they come from mostly IVF procedures, but... Don't forget, these embryos were destined to be destroyed regardless. And so, you know, that's a form of consequentialism to get, you know, more philosophy into this is they're looking at the ends as the justification for the means, you know. So, so bottom line, don't trust that website. Yeah, you got to, <laughs> people probably know that now, but if you, if you're just looking at whatever you find, you know, this California says it's doesn't involve killing a baby either. And that's not true. So we've got to get down to the brass tacks. I know Tom's got a medical trivia question before we get to our guests though. Right, Tom? Yes. Yes, we do. So I thought about asking a question, the category cells in your blood, because the blood does contain stem cells uh, that are that can be used for good. Uh, a 2007 study in Nature Reports revealed that some of our own bone marrow stem cells circulate with the rest of our run-of-the-mill red and white blood cells. So thinking about those mundane red and white blood cells they're not in the news very often so we give them some love today answer the <laughs> following multiple choice question for every white blood cell in your circulation how many red blood cells are there one ten a hundred a thousand or nobody knows for sure you're gonna have to hang on till the end of the show to get the answer to this trivia question but we'll be back right after our break here on dr doctor with our guest dr david prentice Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and it's my privilege to introduce our guest, Dr. David Prentice. He got his bachelor's degree in cellular biology and his PhD in biochemistry, both at the University of Kansas, and did postdoctoral work in cell biology at Los Alamos National Laboratory. He is an internationally recognized expert on stem cell research, cell biology, and biology, and he's provided scientific lectures and policy briefings in 40 states and 21 countries. He's currently vice president and research director for the Charlotte Lozier Institute. 
He's adjunct professor of molecular genetics at the John Paul II Institute at the Catholic University of America, and he's founding advisory board member for the Midwest Stem Cell Therapy Center in Kansas. In 2020, he was appointed by the Secretary of Health and Human Services to the Federal Human Fetal Tissue Ethics Advisory Board, and he has over 40 years' experience is a scientific researcher and professor. He established uh, a website, Stem Cell Research Facts, providing scientific facts and patient-centered videos about adult stem cells. And he's received awards for his teaching at the college level and in bioethics, he is well-published. Welcome to Dr. Doctor, David. Thank you, great to be with you. Hey, first I'd like to give you some uh, attaboys for the Charlotte Lozier Institute. On its website, it says that the uh, Institute is uh, founded to promote deeper public understanding of the value of human life, motherhood, and fatherhood, and identify policies and practices that will protect life. What do you think is the most important thing that the Charlotte Lozier Institute does, David? I think one of the main things we do is, as our motto says, science and statistics for life. We are the voice <laughs> to try and get the real facts about science, as well as the ethics out into the public domain. I mean, if you look at it, frankly, the pro-life community has not had anything of this sort up until the point when our founder, Chuck Donovan, uh, first put the Charlotte Lozier Institute together. Well, that is wonderful. And that's something that's near and dear to our hearts here on Dr. Doctor, because we consider ourselves data-driven, but it's combining the best of the faith with the best that reason and science can provide for everything medical. So, David, I think you made a good suggestion. You want to start with some definitions. So maybe we'll start with, they talk about research with fetal tissue and fetal cell lines and other cell lines. Can you, can you define, separate, and clarify what all those things are? Sure thing. And first, let's do, what's the difference between fetal tissue and a fetal cell line? Fetal tissue involves, as your audience probably knows, a tissue, an organ. An, an actual chunk of tissue, if you will. And it's derived from recent abortions. And so it's a mixed population of cells, for example, as that found in an organ or a limb even. And it's not defined in terms of one particular cell type. Frankly, fetal tissue research is antiquated most of the things they quote about the so-called successes of fetal tissue research, and we are talking about that tissue taken from elective abortion. Most of that comes from the 1960s. This is oh not goodness. modern science at all. Now, you get a cell line. You start with tissue. Any cell line starts with some tissue from an animal. You place sometimes just a small speck of that tissue into the culture dish. Sometimes you treat it with enzymes to break the cells apart from one another. The cells will attach to the bottom of the cell culture dish, begin to grow and divide. They're no longer a tissue. They're a mm. cell line. As soon as those cells attach and start to grow and start to fill that dish, you now have a cell line. Cell line simply being lineage. You can trace that lineage back to that particular tissue, to that particular species that you may have started with. But it hasn't been tissue from about 24 hours after it was placed in the dish and onward. And cell biologists really like cell lines because it gives you a defined cell type. It gives you replicates. You can grow many dishes of those cells to replicate your experiments. You do have that lineage back to the original, but again, this is not a chunk of tissue and hasn't been uh, in many cases for decades. I, and, and so I guess one of the things I know we're going to talk about primarily are the stem cells. Why do, why do anybody want to use the fetal tissue for research? What, what types of things do they look at there? Yeah, with, with the tissue, which again is this collection of cells or even a whole organ, usually what they will say is they want to look at the native state okay. of the cells within the organ, within the tissue and so on. But as I said, there's a, there's a downside to that because you're looking at a mixed population of cells. 
if you were to try and see what's the effect of a particular drug on that mass of tissue, what you're going to find is different cells will respond in different ways. And so that's why we like cell lines and stem cell lines and so on. Um, now, you, you had mentioned that researchers prefer the cell lines for those reasons. Are there any requirements of what type of cell can make a cell line? You know, we think of cancer cells commonly, especially with like leukemias and lymphomas, a certain, mm -hmm. uh, a certain type of cell. Can any, any cell turn into a cell line? Virtually any cell can, yes. And it, now, the, probably the best known cell line is the HeLa cell line. That did start from a cancer back in the 1950s, Henrietta Lacks, which is where the he yes. la comes from in the name, uh, underwent surgery to remove a tumor. Some people, some scientists took some of those cells, put them in the dish. They've been growing in the lab ever since. And it's been used around the world for thousands of different experiments. But pretty much any tissue pretty much any cell type can be used to start a cell line. Now, so most of these cell lines, uh, you know, most cells, don't they have a certain number of times they can divide, they can split in half, and then they'll die, but cancer cells don't? Is there some truth to that? There, there's definitely a truth to that. Normal cells, once put into culture, are usually what we call a finite cell line. As you said, they will undergo a certain number of cell divisions. They'll grow for a while. And then they literally age in culture and they stop growing. Now, you can keep some of those cells going for a long time by growing several dishes and then freezing the cells. And then you can go back to the freezer, thaw some out, continue experiments. And there are some abortion-derived cell lines derived in the 1960s that are still used based on that premise. But eventually those cells will age in culture. They will stop growing. Normal cells have that capacity. Cancer cells would be termed a, a continuous cell line or an immortalized cell line. And you can take any of those continuous or those finite cell lines and make them a continuous cell line. Uh, rodent cells undergo that spontaneously. They transform, we, we say, in culture. They go through a little crisis stage where it looks like they're going to age and die, and then they take off and just continue growing. But you can do the same thing specifically with human cells by using viruses or adding virus DNA or chemicals or radiation. You mutate them is basically what you do. They're no longer a normal cell, but they can be immortalized in that way. Okay, David, so there's a number of different options for making cell lines that have standard, uh, standard what, standard things about them that a researcher knows they can rely on for certain studies that can be made from so many different cells. Why in the world do we have the most common use of these cells, apparently from these HEK293 and PERC6, which were apparently derived from elective abortions? Even back in the 60s, there are a couple of other cell lines I want to mention. WI-38 ah, yes, we Those were two that were abortion-derived cell lines from the 60s. At that point in time, a lot of cell biologists thought the younger the tissue, the longer it will grow in culture. Ah. And so they went to the youngest tissue they could get, aborted fetal tissue. Hmm. And... Those two cell lines that I just mentioned are finite cell lines. They are aging in culture. Eventually, they will die out. The HEK293, the PER.C6, those were also derived from abortion, but they were transformed. They were mutated, uh, both of them, by adding adenoviral DNA. They were immortalized, so they're now a continuous cell line. They started with fetal tissue again because they still had this uh, mistaken idea that that might help them grow longer. But then they immortalized them partly to keep them growing for a long period of time, essentially forever. But also they used viral DNA because they want those particular cells to steady and to grow viruses. Mm. Uh, 
So, David, you you work in the the research world, and so I I don't get to talk about cell lines all that much, except in this context. And I think maybe our listeners are the same. Are all cell lines, you know, tainted? What percentage of them are derived from abortions compared to, you know, is this five percent that we're using for everything, or are there a lot of other choices? They're actually a lot of other choices, licitly derived cell lines. I I would say probably the vast majority of cell lines are not derived illicitly from abortion. There are a few, and basically about four that we've mentioned that are used a lot in laboratories. They they become entrenched, if you will, because... uh, People had used them as grad students or they fulfilled a certain characteristic, the HEK293, to be able to grow viruses or grow what are called pseudoviruses, sort of hollow or fake viruses that can be used to carry genetic material. PER.C6, same reason, primarily for genetic or for viral experiments. But there are a whole host of animal and human-derived cell lines that have nothing to do and no connection with abortion. And one of the things we keep harping on whenever we talk about cell lines are there's so many other licitly derived cell lines that people really need to move away from these antiquated and tainted cell lines. So what role did these cells play in the development of COVID vaccines? So the the two that were used for some COVID vaccines are the HEK293 and the PER.C6. Those two were used in a couple of different ways. Uh, Let me first back up a little bit and talk about how do you make a vaccine against a virus? There used to be just one way. Viruses have to grow in cells. And so you throw some virus into a dish of cells. It infects the cells, it makes lots of virus, you pop open the cells and you get back lots of virus and then you kill or weaken that particular virus and that's that's your vaccine, whole virus vaccine. Well, now there are five ways to make a viral vaccine. And one of those though, uses a carrier virus. The vaccines made by Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca for example. They call it a viral vector, but basically what they do is they encapsulate just one gene. In this case, it's the spike gene for the spike protein in coronavirus, but they get it to our cells and get it inside by using this carrier virus. How do you grow virus? You have to grow it in cells. And unfortunately, most of these companies decided that one of these abortion-derived cell lines was handy, or convenient, or cheap, or whatever, and that's what they used. HEK293 has also been used for some confirmatory tests. In other words, you've you've made your vaccine, however you might have made it, and we can go into that more later. But now you want to know, does it really work? And so there are a couple of ways you can test that. Most of these newer ways, including the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, they carry a small messenger RNA, basically a recipe for just the one spike protein. And so some tests, they just infect cells in the lab to see, will it actually make the spike protein in the cell? And unfortunately, a lot of companies chose the HEK293 for that test. The other test they use is this, I mentioned pseudovirus. It's a fake virus. It's a hollow virus, if you will but they make it so that it has spike protein on the outside. And then if you're doing your uh, vaccination tests, preclinical tests on animals, you want to see if they made antibodies against spike protein. So they used the pseudovirus to test how much antibody was being made. So, David, let's cut to the chase here. Could the two mRNA vaccines available in the United States have been produced as they are now without using tainted cell lines. The mRNA vaccines don't use any cells in their production at all. I'm, yes. I'm sorry. In, the, in the, testing. the Johnson & Johnson, which did use that uh, yes. 
abortion-derived cell line. Yes, it could have been produced with a licit cell line. No connection to abortion. Uh, on our website at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, we've got a rather long, detailed, and I confess, geeky chart that goes into a lot of details. But if you look down that chart, you'll see a number of them where they didn't use any abortion-derived cells in development, in production, or even in testing. We referred to that chart a lot earlier in the year and late last year because we found it the most helpful site on the Internet. And I used to do vaccine research before I got into dermatology, so I really appreciate your work there. I'm sorry to clarify, the mRNA vaccines, could they have been confirmed and tested without using the tainted cell lines? They definitely could have. And So and what again, will it take for us to get there with yeah. companies turning away from these types of cell yeah, lines? I, I think, too, there, there's so many people that I talk to, and the impression, especially from folks who maybe, may, maybe are not doctor people, so to speak, they almost feel like the, the vaccine companies are out to get us. Like they clearly know that we're down on this. Why do they persist? Is this something? Are they abortion lovers that they want to use this every chance they get? I mean, what's the angle there? Yeah, I, I don't really think it's that in most cases for these companies. Frankly, I think there are a lot of scientists who don't know the origin of those cell lines. It's something that they used as a grad student. It's something that they've got in their lab and they've used to make protein or they've used to, to make viruses in the past. And they've never bothered to look at the origin of those cells. Now, granted, there are some that they don't care about the origin. Ideologically, they, they don't care about abortion and the conscience problems that that raises for using that. But I think it's more a matter of convenience, economics, and so on. And there are plenty of examples of other cells, cell lines that can be used, and even other companies that did not use that. In terms of, of current FDA-approved vaccines for things like uh, mumps, measles, rubella, or shingles, and so on, Polio vaccine is all made in licit cell lines now. But it was only a few years ago that one company made it in one of these older abortion-derived cell lines. They switched away. Now, I don't know if that was for economic reasons or because pressure that pro-lifers put on them, but it, it just makes actually good business sense for them to move away from that because there are a number of us who are concerned about vaccines that have any connection to an abortion-derived cell or to abortion in itself. And it would make good business sense for them to just be transparent, to say, yeah, yeah, we realize this is a problem for a significant proportion of the population and we're going to move away, which, which means we have to kind of keep up that drumbeat and keep up that pressure in a Christ-like way to let these companies and to let our government officials know that we want completely unconnected, untainted vaccines or medications or whatever, that they need to move away because there are, like I said, plenty of opportunities, plenty of other companies that don't use these abortion-derived cell lines. David, thank you for that breath of common sense. We're going to take a break now before we go into the second part of the interview, but we're going to cover not only vaccines, but medication development and testing right here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and Dr. David Prentice, clearing the air on a lot of the questions <laughs> with stem cells and vaccines and all the things that... I feel like we, we needed more clarity on. So, David, thank you for being here with us. You know, we talked a lot about the COVID vaccines and the different ways they were made. You know, what other vaccines currently licensed are developed with the bad cell lines? And, and there are only a few, but they persist. There are a total of about nine out of a 84 currently FDA licensed vaccines. First, you can, anything that is bacterial doesn't use a cell line. The bacteria grow themselves. You just take them and you can make your, your That's vaccine. That's your petri dish, that right? The, the viral vaccines, as we mentioned, viruses have to grow in cells and it's a matter of which cells you use. 
the MMR vaccine, and actually only the R, the rubella part of MMR, uses an illicit cell line. Adenovirus vaccine, hepatitis A, varicella, the chickenpox vaccine. There's one version of rabies and one version of singles vac shingles vaccine that does use an abortion-derived cell line, but there are also versions that don't. And in fact, the shingles vaccine, it comes back to this idea that I like to talk about. Ethical science is actually the best science. And the newer shingles vaccine, which does not use an abortion-derived cell line, is better. And in fact, the CDC recently said, hey, don't even take that old vaccine. Right. Focus on this one. Even if you've had the old vaccine, get this new one. So, you know, we're moving in the right direction, but we need to kind of keep pushing along that line. And, you know, I another kind of follow-up just question patients ask me all the time. Why the heck is the MMR stuck together? Why can't I get an MM and skip the R? Yeah, and it's it was a decision made in years past. There used to be separate M's and an R, and they were made licitly. But then when they put them together, uh, probably more for convenience for the manufacturer. Fair enough. So I know a, a topic you like to cover is what are some of the great misconceptions in this area of cell lines and research done with them, David, that you would like to clarify? And let's focus in first on the vaccines again and using the cell lines. A lot of people I, I know talk about, well, I don't want to be injected with fetal cells in my vaccine. There are no fetal cells in any of the vaccines in terms of whole cells. So it's something you don't really need to be worried about. A couple of other misconceptions I'll touch on briefly before we come back to vaccines with the cell lines, especially the abortion-derived cell lines, that there had to be hundreds of abortions to get the one cell line. There's only one abortion for each of those cell lines we mentioned. Now, that's a tragedy by itself, just the one, uh, let alone going to hundreds and so on. There's another misconception out there that uh, these cell lines, any cell line has to be made from fresh living tissue. And so these abortions, the babies were essentially born alive and killed in the process of taking out the organ and the tissue. It's simply not true. I've, I've made lots of cell lines over the decades, no fetal derived cell lines, but human derived cell lines, animal cell lines. My students used me as the experimental animal in a couple of cases and took entirely too much joy at bleeding the professor. But you can make cell lines from, yes, somebody that's still living or an animal that's still living, but even up to days and weeks in some cases after death, you can recruit some cells to start growing in the dish. Uh, yeah. One abortion is tragic, and we need to move away from that, and we do have ample opportunities. Now, in terms of vaccines, I said, you know, you're not being injected with whole cells, but there are cases if they produced that vaccine by growing it in one of those abortion-derived cell lines, where they may, may be some trace amounts of DNA from the cells or protein from the cells. It's usually very, very small amounts. I've seen some concerns about that, that that DNA from a vaccine might be able to get into our cells or especially for little kids and cause deleterious effects of various types, even induce different syndromes and conditions. Uh, there's not really good sound science yet to verify that. I think that's a possibility. I think we need to encourage, again, companies not to use any cells and certainly not any abortion-derived cells for a number of these vaccines. But I don't think we can say at this point that that is really going to induce any sort of problem in people. A similar sort of thing we've heard uh, mRNA vaccines are going to cause genetic changes in those of us who are injected. It's simply not the case. The mRNA is just a little recipe that goes in 
gets in the queue with all the other mRNAs in our cells and codes for the spike protein. The cell makes it, it sticks it up on the outside of the cell and our immune system sees it, gets all excited. It's like the face on a wanted poster. And so we get the <laughs> antibody and cell-based defenses ready in case the actual virus shows up. I really appreciate some of those clarifications too, because one of the things that it's kind of a pet peeve of mine is a lot of the folks that that you're talking to as a listener or we're talking to on, on the show here are secular people who who really value the science even above some of the ethics stuff. And I think it's so important to stick to the solid science. It's yeah. on our side anyways. We know the truth is on all, all one, right? But if we're going to try and win over people, we can't do this because abortion is wrong. You know, I think sometimes we get like a negative halo effect and we feel like since abortion was involved, there must be bad side effects. But hey, we can we can say we don't want to do this because of abortion and we want you to change the cell lines for that reason. And we don't we don't need to, you know, highlight things that are conjecture necessarily to prove our point. Right. I think, you know, and certainly that's been our mantra, stick to the science, because the science actually bears out the truth, as you said. And, you know, again, when talking to some of these companies or, or to elected representatives, you know, there's a significant portion of the population uh, who are concerned about any connection to abortion. It has to do with conscience. It has to do with that aspect of it, not any particular deleterious effects that might come from the vaccine, but simply from the ethics of that. Good science is good ethics. And I think, again, impressing on these folks that you know, it's actually good business practice to focus on the ethical science. David, if one of our listeners wants to do something to support the move to use only licit cell lines in research, what is something that the average listener could do? Well, first, do your research. Uh, these are deeply personal decisions, and we think they need to be deeply informed decisions. So our website, LozierInstitute.org, has a lot of material beyond just the, the vaccine charts that we put together on how vaccines are made, on, on where fetal lines come from, and so on and so forth. So do your research. Be in prayer. Come on. That's, that's the heavy artillery in terms of how to move forward, make your informed decision. And then, as I mentioned, find good Christ-like ways to advocate for ethical cell lines and ethical research, whether that's just talking to folks in your parish, whether that's writing these pharmaceutical companies, talking to elected representatives, but speak up. Those are excellent points, David. And there's a, a complete different area that's been circulating on the internet about cell lines being used to develop medications. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions there. So how are these cell lines used to develop medications and even beyond medications, even flavorings and certain food additives? Yeah. And, and there have been cases of this. For example, you mentioned flavorings where they took actually that HEK293 cell line. They added a gene for taste receptors, and then they would put different chemicals into the cell culture medium that those cells are growing on and look for different reactions of the cells. So it's not a, exactly a case where they're using it to produce any kind of a flavoring or a cosmetic or medication or whatever, but sort of a test off to the side to give them clues on to how to move forward. There have yeah. been cases where, where certain medications have been produced in some cell lines in the past, most of that doesn't happen so much anymore. What you tend to see now is they're using these abortion-derived cell lines for various types of testing. So that would be analogous to some of the mRNA vaccines where they were not produced with it, but they're tested on it. Exactly. And, and that brings up also for medications the idea of of what is really a test, what's a relevant test versus where there's no real connection. So the mRNA vaccines, 
great example. They were developed basically on computer because you're looking at this little strand of genetic code trying to get the right code. That little strand of messenger RNA is made in a test tube with enzymes. There are no cells involved at all. It's encapsulated in what amount, amounts to a very tiny fat particle. No <laughs> cells involved up to that point. Okay, you've got your vaccine, but as I mentioned, then they do some of these tests where they'll throw it into a dish of cells or, or uh, see if antibodies react to it. And that throwing it into the dish of cells, if it's that company, then I, I think they are still connected in that way. It's, it's further removed. It's more remote in terms of cooperation. And some people would say, well, what goes into my arm has had no connection. But for the company, they have made the conscious decision to use that particular cell line in their testing. And so I've mentioned they don't have to. There are plenty of licit ways to do these tests and even some companies making vaccines that do these tests. The same thing applies for a lot of medications. I know out on the internet there are these lists where they're talking about common compounds, over-the-counter drugs like aspirin and ibuprofen and Tums that were, quotes, tested with these abortion-derived cell lines. I'm sorry, it's, it's misleading to say that. Uh, if you think about it just logically, the abortion-derived cell line we've been talking about, HEK-293, was first derived in 1973. Aspirin was developed and marketed <laughs> first in the 1800s. Ibuprofen yes. in the 1960s. Tums is just calcium carbonate with a little sugar. And uh, calcium carbonate is, uh, think of eggshells, seashells, right. yes. calcite in limestone. It was first produced for sale in 1930. It, you know, these are not connections to abortion. If a science fair student throws aspirin into a dish of HEK-293 cells to see what happens, had nothing to do with their production, had nothing to do with the company's testing. It's like if I steal a car and go rob a bank and use that as my getaway vehicle, the car company is not liable and they're not connected ethically to my unethical act. Or if I, I come up with a, a, a pie mix or a cake mix and I market that and somebody buys it and then puts some terrible poison in it, you know, the, the cake company's not liable. So we need, to, we need to be wise. We need to be careful in terms of how we make these sorts of decisions of what is remote cooperation or connection versus what is not. So as a point of clarification, because that was super helpful for me, because I've, I've read those articles as well, you had mentioned maybe some of the taste receptors on cells. That would be different because that would still be in production, right? For certain Right, that, that would be in development and production. It would be that company uh, who is doing that with the whole idea that they are going to use those results in further refining of whatever it is that they're making for the public versus if I took, you know, some sort of compound uh, made by this company, I bought it off the shelf at my local supermarket and I take it to my lab and I throw it in. The company has no connection to the experiments that I'm doing over here. I've heard it argued that people should, you know, if for people who feel inclined to avoid the remote cooperation with the with certain vaccines using the bad cells, they should also feel inclined to avoid the companies using those taste receptors. Is there a list of those, or is this more things that are just common practice? It, there's not really a list in terms of the actual connected testing versus not. It's it's something we have not had the time or resources to put together. I know there are these lists out there that make these claims, but again, those are misleading claims. Like I said, uh, whether we're talking about aspirin, whether we're talking about uh, companies that might have been using those taste receptors in the abortion-derived cell line, the information I've seen is that's no longer used uh, at least in a number of companies that came up, I think it was back uh, 
around 2011 or 2012, that they're not doing that anymore. It does point out a thing, though, that uh, a lot of people complained to those companies back when that happened, that they shouldn't be doing that. And I think that comes back to something we should be cognizant of and doing now. If we're aware that a particular product is produced using fetal tissue or fetal cell lines or even tested on it, you know, we should be advocating with these companies that they should move away from that. that there are good reasons for them to consider the conscience aspects of those sorts of experiments. David, we've got about two minutes left. What are some of the key things? In fact, if there was one key thing that listeners could remember, what would you want it to be from this episode? Well, I, I think, again, that these are, are deeply personal decisions about the vaccines, the medications, the things we put into our body or allow to be done to our body. And you need to make that based on deeply informed conscience that you need to to do your research, you need to be praying about this, and you need to be advocating. Again, speak up. It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm not going to take that. Well, that's great. But that has no effect on anybody unless you start speaking up and speak the truth into the culture. So find out the truth and speak the truth into the culture. And I'd, I'd just direct uh, your listeners again to our website. We've got some of my colleagues and I put together a 60-page review paper. If you want to go to the deep dive on fetal tissue and fetal cell lines and so on that goes on with there. And we also uh, now have what's called Voyage of Life, where we go through human development uh, from zero up to nine months. People can look at that. The public can look at that and get an appreciation for what really goes on during human development and again, do a deep dive, again, based on the science. David, thank you so much for being with us here on Dr. Doctor. I think this has been a boon for our listeners. And hopefully we'll come back and talk about the use of uh, fetal cells and adult stem cells in the treatment of diseases. Thanks for being with us, David. Thank you. And we're back with Dr. Doctor. And after a great interview, Tom, you got a medical trivia question that actually stumped me. I got this one wrong. Oh, my goodness. Yes, we take so much for granted in uh, reading medical test results. But the category cells in your blood, simply for every one white blood cell circulating in your body, about how many red blood cells are there? One, 10, 100, 1,000, or nobody really knows. Well, every microliter cubic millimeter of your blood contains up between five and 10,000 white blood cells. Every cubic milliliter of blood contains about 5 million red blood cells. So the ratio is roughly 1,000 red cells for every one white cell. See, I thought this was a nobody knows for sure, because that's so much a medicine, <laughs> right? So I'm like, oh, choose E, all of the above. But uh, no, I guess you can look at that under a microscope. So there's your answer, one to a thousand. That's great. One to a thousand. Yeah, it's kind of daunting. I mean, those white blood cells, they're doing some heavy lifting with a, a small army. Uh, and before we'll go to your top three takeaways, we kept saying Lozier Institute, and you might not know the spelling. It's L-O-Z-I-E-R Institute.org. That's their website, Lozier Institute.org. And now, Andrew, what are your top three takeaways from this interview? Yeah, I guess the the top three that I, I had kind of talking to, to David there was, number one, there are multiple other cell line options. We do not need to be married to these tainted aborted fetal stem cell lines. Um, so that's number one, no matter what anybody says. Number two, you know, it, I try and think of the, the researchers doing this and David brought up a great point that most of them probably don't even know or are thinking or asking questions about these stem cell lines. And these are perpetuated, it sounds like largely by force of habit of these companies. AKA, they're not necessarily abortion lovers per se. And if we make enough charitable noise, especially <laughs> pointing out that they probably can sell more vaccines, they're liable to change it as they have in the past. And then number three, you know, uh, David mentioned, do your research. 
And I would support that, but you can find every opinion on the internet. So not all research was created equal, unlike people. And so don't believe everything you read. Go to the Lozier institute.org website. And David Offline gave us another website that he recommended called stemcellresearchfacts.org. He said it's linked at the Lozier Institute website. So if you go to them, we, we trust them and that's a good place to get more information. And he said on that website, they even have stories of people who have been helped by adult stem cells in treating their various diseases. And I think that's a wonderful thing to see. Yes. And so tune in for hopefully a future episode on adult versus embryonic stem cells. David, I found him to be a wonderful guest and very not only articulate, but it's so hard to find the facts. You read everything. You're like, is this true? It says the opposite of something else. So I was so happy to have him on. Yes. Trustworthy guests are a goldmine. And thank you, a goldmine of listeners, for being with us for this episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And you can find all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. For those who want to dive deeper into some of the topics, please check our website for bonus links and information in our post for each episode. Just click latest at the top of the main page. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.